Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. If you follow the show on Twitter, at Why Is That Pod, then you know that I've spent the past two weeks visiting New York, Paris, and London. First time in Paris and London, but I've been to New York a couple of times. This has been a pretty cool experience, in part because I was able to try a Michelin-starred fine dining restaurant for the first time. Okay, if I'm being honest, I recorded this episode prior to leaving because I was scheduled to return yesterday and did not expect that I would be able to finish a new episode in about 12 hours, so I'm just assuming that everything went well. Fingers crossed. Speaking of fingers crossed, I briefly looked into the phrase. The most popular etymology states that the phrase is Christian in origin and the sign invokes the cross of Christ. Over time, it started to also be used by those wishing for luck or a blessing from Jesus. Two people would sometimes also cross fingers with one another to make a wish that the Lord would grant. That practice of locking fingers and making a wish could be a forerunner of the pinky promise we discussed a couple episodes back, but that is enough an aside on the fingers crossed for now. In preparation for my trip, I thought it would be fun to look into the history of fine dining since Paris is often cited as the fine dining capital of the world. In fact, the word restaurant was originally coined in France. In the year 1765, the Champ des Oiseaux, which translates approximately to Field of Birds and was more of a nickname for a man named A. Bollinger, opened a business as a soup vendor in Paris. In France, this would today be known as a bouillon restaurant. In the window, Boulanger inscribed a line associated with the gospel. Venite ad me omnes qui stomacho labatoris et ego vos restorabo. This verse is generally associated with Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. In the Bible's New International Version, it is translated to English as, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But it was slightly modified to fit the nature of the business. This is a closer translation to Bollinger's message. Come to me, all of you whose stomachs are in distress, and I will restore you. If you think of our general concept of eating soup, it is definitely associated with restorative powers. I know that when I am sick, I love eating my chicken noodle soup. That last word in the original Latin, restorabo, translates to restore. It was this concept that stuck with Bollinger's business and would eventually be adapted to our word restaurant. Basically, a dining establishment was meant to restore our spirits, and so it became the name of all such establishments. The idea became very popular, and restaurant has since come to denote a public eating place in English, French, Dutch, Danish, Norwegian, Romanian, and several other languages. A slight variation is also used in Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Swedish, Russian, and Polish. In and of itself, a soup vendor with a gospel quote on his window was not all that remarkable. In fact, there were several similar soup vendors scattered all throughout Paris. If Bollinger had remained as a simple purveyor of bouillon, then we would likely not be discussing him now. After he opened, Bollinger decided he was not content to only serve soup, and he started to serve a leg of lamb in white sauce as an alternate option for people who did not want soup or did not want only soup. This was a big deal because at the time, France did not allow a soup vendor to also serve leg of lamb. This was due to the trade guilds that controlled the business activities of the country. 
each individual trade guild held a monopoly over their trade goods. For instance, during Bollinger's life, there were cafes that served coffee or tea, but that was all that could be served, and the proprietor had to belong to the cafe guild. It was the same for pastries and soup vendors. An example of this includes the Café Les Procopes in Paris, which first opened in the year 1686. For context, that is 80 years earlier than Bollinger, and it is thought to be the city's first and oldest café. At the least, it is the oldest continually running café, as it is still open today. It counts among its attendees Napoleon Bonaparte, Benjamin Franklin, and hopefully by the time you listen to this, yours truly. The distinction is that in those early years, it only served sorbet and coffee. Their association with the Café Guild allowed these items to be served, but nothing beyond that. Another example is the establishment Storer. Storer is a famous French bakery that was opened by Queen Marie Leszczynska's personal caterer. Marie had been a Polish princess and brought Storer with her to France when she moved to marry King Louis XV. Storer opened the shop in 1730, and it is in this shop where he invented the rum baba. However, being the personal caterer of the king and queen did not come with any special dispensation to get around the guild rules. He was allowed to sell pastries, and that was it. I want to use an example of a modern chain restaurant to highlight the difference in the rules of old France versus today. We will use the Italian-American restaurant Olive Garden for this purpose. The first rule that if you can afford it, then you are welcome to dine no matter who you are. The next piece is the food. In a single sitting, one could eat breadsticks, salad, soup, pasta, and a cake. This is remarkably convenient and makes for a nice, coherent dining experience. In 1600s France, all five of these items would have had to be purchased from a different location and from members of five different guilds. That very much complicates our modern notion of a night out and strips the diner of any sort of choice when they go to a single establishment. Prior to opening his business, Bollinger had joined the Bullion Guild, and that membership allowed him to serve soup to his heart's content. Once he started serving the leg of lamb, he broke the agreement between the guilds. A leg of lamb with white sauce was under the jurisdiction of the Caterers Guild. In response, Bollinger was sued by the Caterers Guild in an attempt to protect their legal monopoly. Everyone was astonished when Bollinger won that case. This set a brand new precedent that changed the dining scene in France, and for the first time in history, Parisians could go to a single establishment and actually have a selection. Today we take restaurants like Olive Garden for granted, but such a large selection would have been a godsend for those old hungry Parisians. It is in this way that Bollinger became the first restaurant in the modern sense. For his effort, we today refer to those revolutionary establishments as restaurants. The ability for selection or for multiple courses would be the distinction between a modern restaurant and one of those old businesses that sold only a specific item. Taverns predate restaurants, but as they predominantly served alcohol at the time, they would be qualified in the same limited category. In Italy, osterias date back to the 14th or 15th century, but they also primarily served wine and simple food, so neither would reach what we today consider as a restaurant. None of those establishments would have served the fancy cuisine that we today associate with fine dining. Outside of the home or the palace, the only place that really had the ability to mass-produce food items of different natures were hotels or army barracks. For army barracks, it would not be the high-end food, but it was important to keep the soldiers fed. So things like mess halls did exist for soldiers. 
The army and navy of countries generally did employ chefs to continually create large amount of food and foodstuffs to feed the men with swords. As you might imagine, these soldiers did not get a choice of what they ate, they just showed up, waited in line, and were given the meals of the day. This is good because no one wants to go hungry, but it does not provide any type of explanation for how we got fine dining restaurants today, so I won't linger any longer. Hotels, inns, and those types of establishments did provide food and meals for travelers. They had a bit more freedom in what they could provide than cafes or bouillons as the meals were thought of as more of an in-house and only provided to those staying at the hotel or inn. The reason that we do not include the hotel kitchen as an early forerunner of the restaurant is that the food that was served was usually more of an extension of the innkeeper's meal than it was a standalone experience for the traveler. The innkeeper would prepare enough food for everyone that was staying at the hotel, and then you ate what you were served. It was not like today where a patron might visit the hotel bar, receive a full menu, then receive a freshly prepared meal. Hotel dining options were limited and allowed under the guild rules because the hotel was seen as an extension of the home, and that way the innkeeper was the host and the travelers were their guests. So this means that hotels, military mess halls, and the limited option service were basically the extent of private food establishments prior to Bollinger. As you can see, there really was not an option that comes close to our modern idea of a restaurant, and certainly nowhere near to a fine dining establishment. That does not mean that the rich did not have a way to dine in luxury before the restaurant, it just meant that it was not done at restaurants. Instead, it was done in the household in the form of a private dinner party. When I was in university, I took a course in Roman history. Towards the end of that course, we had a Roman dinner party. This included making a traditional Roman dish that was large enough to share and learning how to correctly wear a Roman toga. This is not as straightforward as you might expect, but there are some great YouTube videos about the proper technique for both traditional male and female togas. The website Past the Garum also has some fantastic recipes that were used in ancient Rome. Once we had that preparation out of the way, we arrived at class where those of age drank diluted wine and everyone sampled the various dishes. The really important thing that added to the authenticity was that we all lay it on our side while we ate. Beyond the everyone bringing a dish to share part and doing it in a classroom, this was a fairly accurate recreation of a dinner party in ancient Rome. The dinner party was a very important piece of Roman daily life, at least for the urban populace. A dinner party was always a good indication of the host's social standing. Important guests brought prestige to the host as did the quality of food served. The wealthier the host, the better the food. The host is the key though. These dinner parties were hosted in the private abodes of the city's inhabitants and that host provided the meals for their guests. Generally the meals were prepared by the host's personal chefs and servants. The number and quality of the chefs varied based on the wealth of the host. If you were less wealthy, perhaps you had to use a slave or, or do it yourself. If you were very poor, you probably just ate bread from the grain dole and missed out on the grand dinner parties, but that is a different story altogether. Lords, ladies, kings, queens, emperors, empresses, shahs, and minor nobility throughout time immemorial have participated in the most grand of dinner parties. Dinner parties for foreign dignitaries, potential local allies, and just to impress their peers. These dinner parties were prepared by the host's household servants, slaves, and the very special chef. The chefs would create fantastic meals for every occasion. It was even common for nobles to attempt to poach the best chefs from other households, and this made the most talented chefs high in demand. Often the best chefs worked for the top of the food chain. French kings and Roman emperors were particularly known for employing the most terrific chefs. Those chefs had the tools to create some of the most fantastic and unique meals. 
One of their favorite meals was the ortolan. The ortolan is a small bird about the size of a lemon and was considered a somewhat rare delicacy. During the height of the later French kingdom, the process of preparing an ortolan included capturing one alive, then blinding it with a knife. The blind bird would then grow confused and not know if it was night or day. This resulted in the bird eating almost non-stop so that it grew unnaturally fat for its species. Once sufficiently fat, but still alive, it would be dunked and drowned in a vat of Armagnac brandy. This is done to kill the bird, but more importantly to marinate the bird. Once dead, it would be roasted for approximately 8 minutes, then have its feathers plucked. The rest of the bird was served whole. The bird is so small that it is able to be eaten in a single bite. The king or favored guest would generally be blindfolded so as to increase their sense of smell and taste. Or if you believe one disputed tradition, it is to shield the diner from God's eyes the decadent and disgraceful act of eating a bird whole. Alternatively, it was just gross to watch your fellow diner spit out the larger bones and people did not want to ruin their appetite, but who's to say? Once served, the diner would take the bird by the beak, place the ortolan feet first into their mouth, and eat the bird whole, bones and all. The juicy fat is supposed to be one of the most majestic tastes in the world, and the crunch of the tiny bones adds to the full experience. It has been said that the taste is enough to bring delightful tears to the eyes of the diner because it is just so delicious. In today's world, this delicacy is illegal, but if you have enough money and certain connections, it can still be procured. Several prominent French chefs have even attempted to petition the government to allow them to serve the bird as it was such an important piece of French custom and culture, but they have as yet made no headway. Not all would be as extravagant as the Ortolan meal, but in general an elegant dining atmosphere with high quality and well-prepared food was reserved for the nobles to partake in in the comfort of their own homes. Obviously things were not exactly the same year to year or generation to generation, and it can be debated just how comfortable these dinner parties were, as I cannot imagine the women who had to wear corsets to them felt it was all that comfortable. But this just serves as a general picture of fine dining before the restaurant. So, what changed all this? Why is it that I, a person who does not have access to a private chef, or even know someone that does have access to a private chef, was able to dine at a fine dining establishment? In the simplest terms, it was the French Revolution and the ideas of egalité and fraternité that came with it. Let's use America's favorite fighting Frenchman as an example. Gilbert du Motier is better known as Lafayette, after the title he held since just before his second birthday. One of the largest history podcasters, Mike Duncan, is currently working on a biography of that man tentatively titled Citizen Lafayette. The citizen portion comes directly from his role in life led during the French Revolution. His noble title was the Marquis de Lafayette, and he headed one of the most ancient and prestigious families in all of France. He fought in the American Revolutionary War and is one of eight people in the history of the United States to be awarded honorary U.S. citizenship. Back in France, he became a leader in the French Revolution as one of the three authors of the Declaration of the Rights of the Man and of the Citizen of 1789. This was a very influential document during the early portions of the French Revolution. One of the many, many outcomes of the French Revolution was the abolition of royal titles. This was how the Marquis de Lafayette became Citizen Lafayette. Citizen was a neutral title. Everyone could use it. It was part of the equality piece of the revolution's motto. 
Lafayette eventually ran afoul of the radicals who took over the revolutionary government and attempted to flee through the Austrian Netherlands, but was captured and spent several years in an Austrian prison. Compared to some of his noble peers, a stay in an Austrian prison was a fairly light penalty. As the revolutionary government turned on the nobles, many lost more than just their titles. Some nobles were stripped of their land, and many more were stripped of their heads by Madame de Guillotine. Still others were able to flee to the safety of other countries and form émigré communities. His quick survey of the French Revolution showed how the old system of noble landowners came to a very violent end, but what it does not address is what happened to those who depended on the nobles for their livelihood. If the nobles were stripped of their land, what happened to the gardeners and caretakers who used to tend to that land? If the nobles were beheaded, what happened to the handmaidens who used to tend to that head? If the nobles were gone, what happened to the people who used to feed the nobles? The answer to that last question is also the answer to why it is that we have fine dining restaurants today. One day a chef was busy making foie gras and caviar for their noble lord, and the next day they were witnessing that very same noble's head drop into a basket. After that happened, the chef had two options. One, find a way to make money. Two, starve. Most of them chose option one. Many of these chefs were very highly trained and very highly skilled, but there was no place for them to go with that training and those skills. After a life spent perfecting one's craft, it sure is difficult to go into an untrained labor market where one would make just as much money as the 15-year-old down the block. As Robespierre and all the other radicals yelled about liberty, equality, and brotherhood, the chefs had an idea. If everyone was actually equal and within the same brotherhood, then liberty demanded that they offer their skills to everyone. If someone had the ability to pay, even if only for one night, then why should that person not get to eat food as spectacular as the European white truffle? So those chefs who had been dispossessed of their livelihood when their employers had been dispossessed of their lives decided to follow in the example of Bollinger. The former chefs of noble families chose to open establishments where people could come and enjoy the best cuisine the world had to offer. Of course, unlike Bollinger, these chefs had grown accustomed to a life of luxury inside the noble estates, and it was luxury food that the chefs were best at creating. These chefs then hit upon a revolutionary idea. Recreate that luxury atmosphere for their guests so that everyone could know what it was like to be a noble. Luxury food, luxury atmosphere, and of course a luxury bill. This created a whole new way to make money, and like all great fads, it spread very far, very fast. The genesis was in Paris, but soon luxury French restaurants were everywhere. In a book originally published in England in the year 1861, so only about 70 years after the early events of the Revolution, the demand for the restaurants was explained in the following way. Man, it has been said, is a dining animal. Creatures of the inferior races eat and drink. Man only dines. This concept of dining was thought to be one of the purest drives of humankind and something that set it apart from the animals of the world. The book was Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management. First published in 1861, it had sold over 2 million copies by 1868 and was one of, if not the most, often consulted cookbook from 1875 to 1914. It provides some excellent context on the art of dining and provides a plethora of contemporary recipes. The book has remained in constant print since its first publication, with subsequent editions expanding and including additional recipes. Many of those recipes were plagiarized from other contemporary cookbooks, but plagiarization was less of a thing back then. Another interesting quote follows. 
Dining is the privilege of civilization. The rank which a people occupy in the grand scale may be measured by their way of taking their meals, as well as by their way of treating their women. The nation which knows how to dine has learnt the leading lesson of progress. It implies both the will and the skill to reduce to order, and surround with idealisms and graces. The more material conditions of human existence, and wherever that will and that skill exist, life cannot be wholly ignoble. While some of the points are a bit outdated for our modern ears, it does still have some kernels of truth. Dining, especially fine dining, is a very nice privilege provided by the civilization that we live in today. I like that I'm able to eat what I like and spend my money on food as I see fit. Of course, the ability to spend money on food is also a privilege in and of itself, and one that not everyone has the luxury to do. For me, my first experience with fine dining was probably as a busboy rather than as a diner, and yet it is still easier for me to experience a nice meal out than it would have been for someone of my social station even as recently as 300 years ago. In today's world, we have reached an even further designation between fine dining establishments that further separate them from the regular casual restaurants. For one, we have celebrity chefs. The first celebrity chef is usually stated as Marie-Antoine Corinne. Corinne was known for innovating French cuisine into a so-called high art. He focused on the aesthetic appeal as well as the taste. He was born in 1784, just five years before the most accepted date for the start of the French Revolution and in his short 48 years of life became internationally known for his unique style of cooking. He published cookbooks and in time even became known as the king of chefs. He helped to create the proud line of celebrity chefs that is continued today by the likes of Gordon Ramsay and Wolfgang Puck. Chefs are celebrated in their own shows, in review videos on YouTube, or on TV shows like Chef's Table or Iron Chef. It is a worldwide phenomenon that continues to grow today, and it all started with the concept that regular people, not just nobles, should be able to enjoy and experience luxury, even if it is just for one night. Well, the experience of luxury and the, oh crap, all the nobles are gone and the only skill I have is cooking food for nobles, how am I going to feed my family? The final piece I wanted to cover before wrapping up the episode is the most popular rating system for these fine dining establishments, the Michelin Guide. The Michelin Guide is a destination guide of different large cities throughout the world that is perhaps most famous for its Red Guide, which ranks the best and most luxurious restaurants in the world. In order to understand the ranking system, it is important to understand the purpose of these guides. The original Michelin Guide was published in the year 1900 and did not include the famous restaurant ranking. It was published by the Michelin Brothers, who are usually more recognized for their Michelin tires. Yes, Michelin Guide, Michelin Tires, same people. The goal of the guides were to share with the people of France the many great places one could travel. More travel would mean that more people would buy cars, which meant more people would drive those cars, which meant more people would need tires. Pretty genius marketing plan, really. The guides continued expanding and growing in popularity. Soon the guides were published in more places and reviewed more destinations. After World War I, they decided to revamp the guides and at this point added restaurants. The restaurant section was their most popular selling point, and the brothers recruited reviewers to visit restaurants and to report back their findings so that only the best were included in the guides. The guide then ranked them in the following way. Three stars, exceptional cuisine, worth a special journey. Two stars, excellent cooking, worth a detour. One star, a very good restaurant in its category. So even a one star is still a very good restaurant, but two and three stars are worth going out of your way to dine, which in a guide created to get people traveling is really high praise. 
Okay, and on that note, I will leave you. I really enjoyed putting this episode together and claiming that it was useful research for my trip. If all goes according to plan, then by the time you are listening to this episode, I will have safely returned from my trip and will be working on our next episode. That episode is due out in two weeks, so be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app, whether that be Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Republic, iHeartRadio, or wherever podcasts are streamed, so that you do not miss it. As always, you can find the show on Facebook or Twitter at WhyIsThatPod, online at whyisthatpodcast.blogspot.com, or by email, whyisthatpod at gmail.com. If you have a minute, I would greatly appreciate a review in your podcast app of choice, not just iTunes, so if you don't have an Apple product, I'm not even asking you to go out of your way. Each review is truly very helpful for growing the show. Okay, thanks for listening to the Why Is That Podcast. I hope you have a great couple weeks. Cheers.